The following is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Global News Radio. This is the Employment Law Show on Global News Radio. And welcome to it. A few minutes after uh, 7 o'clock here on your Monday evening. Darn cold one out there, so it's good to be uh, bundled up by a radio and listen and learn this evening. John Pinkus, partner, Sanfiru Tamarkin, LLP, the most positively reviewed employment law firm in this entire country, is here with us answering all of your questions. Want to reach out to John when uh, we're not doing the show and he turns off his mic, one 821 5,900 email option as well. We'll try to get to a few of those tonight uh, between our calls. That would be help at employmentlawyer.ca. And anytime, I'll tell you, even before the phone call to John, you want to go to pocketemploymentlawyer.ca, free and anonymous website, and wrapped up into that, nicely done, is the severance pay calculator, among other things to be learned about your current employment law rights, your common law rights, which, and as of 2022, are still robust, still on your side, so make sure you reach out and listen to this entire program. And call in if you have any questions, because, you know, every question you have, there's probably thousands of others that are wondering the same thing, so you're doing everybody a good turn. That number, 416-870-6400. On the show today, we're going to get to quite a bit of of stuff. We've got to uh, see how much we can get through, but the first topic will be everything you need to know about termination for cause. But a couple things first. Mr. Pincus, how are you, pal? What What do you got cooking? Oh, I'm good. I'm good. Busy as always. Uh, mm-hmm. 2022 is, uh, well, it's looking uh, pretty similar to 2021, isn't it? Uh, for, for better yeah. or for worse. <laughs> uh, so a lot of things to talk about. And uh, if anyone has any issues, uh, be them uh, COVID-related or, or just workplace-related uh, at large, we're certainly happy to talk about any workplace uh, law issues on the show. But uh, as you mentioned, John, first we start with a few situations that uh, recently came across my desk. So First situation I wanted to talk about uh, involves an employee who worked at a pharmacy as an assistant manager for the last 18 years. And for the last 15 years, uh, this person's been working the day shift from 9 a.m. to 4.30 p.m. And this was important because her husband works the night shift in a manufacturing facility, so she needs to be able to pick up her children from school. Mm -hmm. Uh, One of them was actually in daycare and to supervise them in the evening. Well, a little while ago, this pharmacy lost their night manager, who unfortunately quit without giving any notice, so they were left scrambling. And the owner told this person, well, look, we're in an emergency situation. We can't find anyone to do the night shift, so we need you to do the night shift for next week. So she says, okay, I'll find an arrangement for my kids to do this week, but just so you know, this is not sustainable in the long term. Well, thankfully, as we will see, she did this in writing. She sent them an email. Mm -hmm. So the week goes by and everything runs smoothly. And the owner of the pharmacy comes up to her and says, ah, you know what? This is actually working quite well. I actually think I'm going to keep you on this permanently. And she says, well, well, wait a minute, she says. I, I, I told you I can't do this. I haven't had to do the night shift for 15 years. I have children now. I need to be home with them. And the manager responds as well. You found accommodations last week. Uh, so just keep what you're doing. And, and that's, um, that's the point that she came to me. And the key here is... You know, there is, of course, a, you know, there's a duty to accommodate, and, and we're often focused on the human rights aspect of this. 
uh, you know, was it a violation of her family status rights because she's being asked to choose between her parental responsibility right. and her jobs? And we can, you know, we can debate whether that was reasonable to have to force her to do that accommodation going forward. But that was actually besides the point here. The point here was that she had been working certain hours for 15 years. So irrespective of the family and the parental obligations, that was a term of her employment. They knew those hours were valuable to her, those were better hours for her, and they just pulled the rug from under her because it was inconvenient. Now, this doesn't mean that an employer never has the right to change an employee's hours. Of course they do, and they do all the time. Uh, but given the extreme circumstances here, uh, this was a very good candidate, in my view, for constructive dismissal. And so we're going to be pursuing her rights to severance and human rights damages. And, you know, the key thing here, John, is that she did it in writing. If she hadn't done it in writing, uh, certainly there would have been more obstacles here. So if this is happening to you, if, if this is all sounding familiar, uh, mm. just make sure that you're, you're putting that in writing as well. And ideally, speaking with an employment lawyer. And I assume when you say, you know, there there's opportunities or there is times when an employer can make changes to the work hours or days, I guess that's when it's written into an employment contract when the person starts their job, right? That gives the employer the right to do so, no? Sure. I mean, that's one way that, that it can be done. Uh, but yeah. the other way that it can happen is just a, a practice that, that becomes over time. You know, if you have a practice where one day you're working the day shift, the next day you're working the night shift, and you're alternating back and forth for 10 years and doing that, mm -hmm. you can't all of a sudden turn around and say, well, I don't want to do this anymore. I think I like the day shift better, right? That's <laughs> that's become a, an implicit term of your employer, right? So you, you do have to look at the history of the relationship and see what's been understood. But but here, this was someone who was working for 15 years, the same thing. You know, at that point, it's pretty well understood that that's the shift that person works, right? And so that's that's when it becomes something that the employer can't do without the employee's consent. Again, 416-870-6400. you got questions here now live on air. Bring them on. We'd love to talk to you. Grab a phone and uh, do exactly that. Uh, what else is going on, pal? So the, the other situation I thought we could talk about uh, involves an employee who was working as a production manager for about two years. And at the beginning of his employment, he was asked to sign a contract, and he'd been out of work for some time, so he went ahead and signed the agreement. Well, two years go by, and his, ter his employment's terminated without cause, and of course he learns that the employment agreement contained an early termination clause. Mm. Now, fortunately, that termination clause is completely unenforceable, illegal, and there's no way they're going to be able to, re uh, to rely on it. Well, why am I telling the story? Well, for, for two reasons mainly. Now, first of all, if your employer is relying on an employment agreement, know there's a very strong chance that it, it actually has not been drafted legally because uh, many uh, employment agreements are not. The second thing uh, is that this person came to me, and this is the part I haven't mentioned yet, but this person came to me only three weeks before his two-year limitation period was going to expire. It had taken him five months to find a new job, and in fact, uh, we're seeking to compensate him for that time. But if he had waited only a few more weeks, it would have been too late. He would have been wow. held to the bare minimum under the Employment Standards Act, because that's, that's all he got, um, and he wouldn't have been able to, uh, to pursue more. So please, please remember, two-year limitation period from the date you receive your notice of termination. You don't want to wait. You want to call us as soon as you get that letter. Again, 416-870-6400. Our topic is going to be everything you need to know about termination for cause, but the callers, as I mentioned, always top priority. Mark, thanks for standing by for a moment. How are you? Not bad. How's it going? Good. What's on your mind? Okay. Um, right now, I've been off for work for probably almost two years now on uh, disability. 
and um, I found another job. How would I um, tell my old, like my disability person that I'm like quitting? Like, would I have to go back to work? Or so you're you're talking about your your former employer? Yeah, where I'm working right now. Like, I'm I've been on disability now, and I'm getting paid through our benefits. Right. And well, I found. Sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead. So you said you're getting benefits. I found a better paying job. Mm. How do I like when I have to go back to that place and quit, or how would I come upon that? Well, you know, it's an interesting question, Mark. You know, normally I would say you, you really should be given uh, giving a notice of resignation, right? So you may have a contractual obligation to give a notice of resignation so that the employer can. Uh, I mean, the purpose of that, of course, is for the to give the employer an opportunity to find a replacement. But here, you've already been off for two years, um, so you know if you if you have a um, you know if you have a notice of resignation provision in your employment agreement, I, I think you could contact the employer and say, "Look, obviously, in the circumstances, can we agree that this that this doesn't apply?" Um, if you don't have a specific notice of resignation provision, then I think you can just let your employer know that, "Hey, I've." Uh, Make, it makes sense, Mark. And I'm going to, uh, I'm going to let you go there for a moment. If you have any other questions, you can uh, you can get them in. And uh, you want to reach out to John anytime one eight five five eight two one sorry fifty nine hundred. Sorry, pal. We just uh, we lost you there for a moment, but he uh, he took off. I want to move on to. If we got time? Yeah, we got time. We'll squeeze uh, Miriam's question here. Hi, Miriam. How are you? Good. And yourself? Good. What's going on? I just want to know. Is it good to send an amendment um, with basic changes to an employee's uh, contract? Can you send it by email, or do you have to get the employee to sign off and put in their file? Um, well, uh, the agreements can be, in fact, agreements can be signed by virtue of DocuSign. Uh, there's certainly nothing wrong with having an agreement done electronically. In fact, uh, well, in, in, in this uh, in this day and age, uh, with with well, I should say the post-COVID world, um, hardly anything uh, now is done in writing. So I, I don't see if if the question is, is there any. Thing wrong with uh, the the fact of transmission by email? Certainly, no. There's nothing wrong with that, and you can get an, a, a, a signature electronically. Was was that what you were getting at? Right, but what if they don't sign back? What if it just here's the information, basic changes happening to your employment, and then that's it? Just sending it mm. by an email, and that is I see. sufficient. I, okay, okay. I see. I see uh, what you're saying. So, um, what kind of changes are we talking about here? Uh, just who they're going to be paid by. Who they're going to be paid by. Okay. Well, um, that's that's not something that would typically be considered, uh, you know, what what we would call a material change in employment. So that's not something that's, you know, you're you're not uh, giving them something that's going to detriment them. Um, so exactly. I, so if it's not the kind of thing that you need their consent to do, it's not the kind of thing that you need their sign off to do. So I think just simply notifying them that uh, the the uh, um, the source of their pay, assuming the pay is going to be the same, uh, is right. uh, is changing. Uh, I, I think that I don't see any issue with uh, simply giving them notice of that, assuming that is, in fact, the only change. Okay, wonderful. Yeah, that's perfect. Great, Mary. Appreciate that. You need uh, any other help any other time? Here's how you do that. one 821 5900 Regina, stand, uh, stand by. We'll get to your call. 
Just going to put you on hold there for a sec and your calls as well. Talking to you, feel free to call us 416-870-6400 is the way to do that. Uh, Employment Law Show continues. This is Global News Radio. You are listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Global News Radio. Welcome back to the Employment Law Show on Global News Radio. You bet. Welcome back to the show. John Pickus here, uh, partner, San Fierro to Markin, LLP. You want to reach out confidentially, email John. You can do that. Help at employmentlawyer.ca. Call 1-855-821-5900. Also go to employmentlawyer.ca, the website, get the advice you need and the compensation you deserve. How about that? It's worth a phone call from a firm that has successfully helped tens of thousands of Canadians do precisely that, reaching out across this country. But, yeah, here now, 416-870-6400. Regina, thank you so much for standing by for a couple minutes. How are you? Great. How are you doing, despite this COVID? Excellent. <laughs> I know, right? Terrible. Well, it'll be June soon. Well, maybe not, but regardless, what's uh, what's going on in your world? Okay, I'm self-employed. Uh, I'd like to know... Um, um, what what um, we have in terms of protection, in terms of, for instance, working um, like a whole weekend. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it, it's so hard to explain. Um, like, uh, is there any protection for people like me in terms of how many hours I need to work? or whatever, even though I'm self-employed, um, you know, say well, uh, this, for this a, is a good you know, weekend or whatever. Mm-hmm. Well, th- this is actually a very good question, Regina, because uh, the real question is, are, are you self-employed um, in function or only in title? And what I mean by that is, you know, there's a lot of people who are characterized as self-employed who, of course, actually are self-employed, right? They have a number of clients. I, I am have- actually self-employed. Okay, so you're not you're not working exclusively for for one person no. just being paid as self-employed. No. Well, if you're if you're self-employed, uh, then you wouldn't be entitled to the protections of the Employment Standards Act, um, and uh, that that's really where those protections come from, right? So if you don't fall within the ambit of an employee under the Employment Standards okay. Act, can you get- tell me again what which act is that? That's the Employment Standards Act. So the Employment okay. Standards Act. Yeah. Yes. So that in, in Ontario, the employments and every province has has their own version of it, uh, of the employment standards that set out minimum, um, well, maximum rather hours of work, overtime provisions, uh, all of which, by the way, have exceptions. Right. So even if you're an employee, you're not necessarily going to be entitled to those things. But certainly if you are not an employee and if you are simply operating a business, you're not going to be eligible for those protections. So what do people like me do? Well, uh, presume bear it and work, you know, ninety-two hours straight. Uh, well, presumably, um, you. No, no, uh, I'm just I, saying that's the truth. Yeah, yeah. I think I think the presumption is that uh, a person who is self-employed 
will simply Im Im impose limitations themselves because they'll be in a position where they can control their hours and basically tell their clients, um, I'm not able to work this level of hours, right? Because if you're self-employed, you're, you're supposed to be, the idea is you're supposed no, to be no, an equal playing field. No, no, but if you're on call for a company. Right. And they say you got to be on call for, 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 you know, 72, 96 hours. No, no. Uh, there's a lot of situations like that. Trust me. Well, but that 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 takes me back to the original question, right? If you're mm -hmm. if you're in a position where you're not really in control of your own hours and you're not in control, I'm not of then then you may, in the eyes of the law, not actually be a self-employed person. You may be employed by this company, right? So y you may okay, think of yourself. Okay, just just for argument's mm -hmm. sake, mm -hmm. if I said, okay, I am self-employed. Mm -hmm. And um, should not the government be concerned if I work more than 48, 72, 96 hours straight? Should they not be still, you know, even though I'm quote-unquote self-employed, should they not be concerned that I'm doing these hours? Well, I, I mean... Should there not uh, be some safety issue there? Well, on, on, on this show, we can't uh, we can't really talk about what the law should be. Uh, more, uh, I'm more here to talk about what the law as it is. Um, but what I suspect the response to that would be uh, is basically the government is concerned about people um, who are subject to the control of companies in in independent relationship with a company um, and working excess hours. Those people, regardless of what they're labeled whether they're labeled mm -hmm. as an independent contractor or an employee, do get the protection of the Employment Standards Act. Appreciate the uh, the time, Regina. Hope that answers uh, some of the questions. Anyway, 416-870-6400 is the way uh, to call in. Got to move on to uh, to Bill. Hi, Bill. How are you doing? Good, sir. What's up? Um, I have a question for the man there. Um, my daughter's a PSW. They, they uh, practically got laid off um, because of the vaccine thing. However, the company has put them down as they all took a leave of absence, so they can't even apply for that. Now, it's a union thing. I know he doesn't fight them. I'm just wondering if that uh, leave of absence thing is even legal. Well, the, the, the fact that, um, that a union is involved um, is, is as, as you mentioned, you know, is, is a major issue here because, of course, only the union can actually do anything about it. And I can tell you in the non-unionized uh in the non-unionized sector, it doesn't really matter if an if an employer calls it uh, an unpaid leave of absence or termination for cause. They're effectively the same thing, and it comes back to the question: Did the employer have the right to make this a condition of employment? Did they have the right to introduce vaccination as a new term of employment and say, if you don't do this, you're you're effectively no longer working for us, right? Uh, so, in this case, you know, the question that I would have. Uh, you know, is is sort of what's the setting that this person's working in? If it's a long-term care home or somewhere where a, a, a law would apply that would mandate this, um, then uh, then there there may not be any right uh, to pursue severance. But if it's in a setting uh, where um, a legal requirement is not there, uh, that the employees are not mandated by law to be vaccinated, uh, then there there may be a case for severance. But you know, going back to what you mentioned. 
uh, correctly, you know, there's nothing we can we can do about it if the union's involved because you have to appeal to the union to take uh, action. And so far, the unions haven't been able to um, to to really do this as an injunction. So a few unions have stepped in and tried to stop employers from implementing these policies, and and the court has basically said no. That's uh, that's not the way we're going to handle this. Okay, well, so for your question, it is a long-term care, and um, mm -hmm. I think, as far as I know, the union's trying to do something, but uh, mm -hmm. but I just didn't know if it was even legal to see what they're doing. In my mind, is they're saying they can't collect UI, so they're trying to force them back to their way of thinking. So the the employment insurance is a separate issue, right? So uh, the federal government has taken the stance that anyone who uh, is uh, terminated. Uh, or uh, placed on a leave of absence due to non-vaccination is not going to be entitled to employment insurance. Now, that doesn't say anything about whether it's legal for the employer to do that, uh, but it does mean that employment insurance uh, is not going to be, uh, those people can't collect it. So that's just a, a blanket federal policy. Okay, yeah, I, I've heard that last week or whenever it came out, but... Uh... Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I guess the original question I had is: Is it even legal for them? Like, why why wouldn't they just call layoff? Is, is I guess what I'm saying. Uh, well, it, it it doesn't really matter what they call it. It sounds like in this instance, uh, although if the union is is fighting it, there's there's probably more to the story here. Uh, but if if they are a long term care home and if they're covered by that legislation, it's difficult to see how um, there would be. Um, anything illegal about uh, what they've done here but uh you know maybe maybe they're in a, a long-term care home that for whatever reason is not covered by that uh, by that law bill appreciate the call uh, this evening 416-870-6400 is the way to call through aces uh good evening how are you hey there sir not too bad yourself good what's uh what's on your mind man um so this question has to tie to um independent contractors if you're self-employed mm. Working through an agency for another company, you have your set hours. Are you covered under the Employment Standard Act in terms of overtime hours, vacation pay, pension, and such? Because you're independent, and this kind of ties back to what we spoken to earlier, mm -hmm. whether it's a function or uh, the documentation. Well, you know, it's interesting because I see people in those circumstances all the time. Uh, and there are entire industries that, that uh, seem to operate on this notion that if you simply pay someone through an agency, you can call them an independent contractor, uh, which, which is nonsense. Uh, if someone is uh, subject to the control and the direction of a company uh, and, they, uh, and there's a dependency relationship there and, and all the factors that we look at for who's an, who's an employee and who's really in business for themselves, if you are really, when you look at the factors, if you're really in business for someone else, you're an employee and you should be entitled to um, all the uh, all the benefits of the uh, Employment Standards Act, right? So an employee by any other name is still an employee. So that's the way we have to look at it. What are the facts on the ground? So, however, then we get into a different argument with regards to the tax implications. Um, mm. With respect to being full-time income, I mean, 52% after 92K is quite a bit of a step as opposed to keeping it within a corporation and paying yourself mm -hmm. to be a fair minimum. So uh, I guess the question would be, is there really an upside to calling yourself out in that situation? Or rather, is it best to just stay quiet because you end up hurting yourself more so in the long term? 
or what would you try to see in these situations? Well, uh, I, I think that's a that's a situation that you want to have two discussions, right? You want to have one discussion with an employment lawyer and one discussion with an accountant. And you want to say, look, uh, to your accountant, look, I, I think... Um, uh, I, I think that uh, I may actually be an employee here. Um, have have we been filing my taxes correctly, and what's my risk here? The fact of the matter is, if you are an employee and you have been right. taking um, improper tax deductions, then regardless of what you're entitled to, you're you're at risk, right? So just because you don't right. uh, you don't go after your entitlements as a, as an employee doesn't mean okay I'm safe now I can um, I can deduct whatever I want, right? So you you still have to make proper deductions, um, but right. you know some people do a, a, a risk benefit analysis and say well you know what I'd rather like to focus on maintaining this as a legitimate arm's length relationship so that I can protect my uh, you know, continue just, right. to 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 right. have legitimate tax deductions, right? Uh, but right. just just like and and again, we you know we don't talk about tax issues, uh, but uh, generally speaking, your accountant will probably tell you, well, CRA is going to like like the Ministry of Labor, like the courts, mm -hmm. going to look at the facts on the ground. Understood. Um, and then uh, the second thing, while working through an agency, I know that there's a couple of uh, class actions going. Against some of the agencies, it's been a big thing recently. Mm -hmm. um, if you were to join a class action, and then because uh, within some industries they're all connected, um, and you end up getting barred from continuously, continually practicing, is there action you can take? Oh because, goodness, uh, <laughs> that's a that's a very very complicated uh, scenario to be in. I think that would probably be a longer discussion than uh, uh, yeah. the format will allow us to today. <laughs> but I'd certainly invite you to give me a call to to, to chat about that uh, off air. Appreciate the uh, appreciate the call for sure. And to do that, it's coming, John. One eight five five eight two one fifty nine hundred for sure. Uh, help email at uh, pardon me email help at employmentlawyer.ca. But we still got lots of time, so if you want to uh, ask your questions, bring it on four one six eight seven zero sixty four hundred. And the website pocketemploymentlawyer.ca is available for you uh, for you anytime as well as we roll on here in between calls. All you need to know about termination for cause number one. Get rid of some confusion. What is termination for cause, Johnny? So, you know, most people who come to me, are, are their employment has been terminated without cause, right? And the, and the issue is, what's the adequate period of severance? And, you know, a lot of people will say, well, you know what? I really don't think my employer had the right to do this. I was a good performer. I did everything right. And to that, I, I tell the employers, well, the employer doesn't have to have a reason to do this. They can do it for any reason. But when the employer alleges a termination for cause, then they do have to have a reason. And not only do they have to have a reason, they have to have a very, very, very compelling reason because this is what we call the capital punishment of employment law, right? It's reserved for the worst kinds of conduct. So what are we talking about here? Well, we're talking about stealing, fraud, sexual assault, lying, uh, criminal misconduct in the workplace. Uh, so things that totally uh, remove any ability to have a functioning uh, employment relationship. The trust is gone and you simply can't be there anymore. And, and I find this is in a vanishingly small uh, level of cases where cause actually exists there. Uh, most of the time that I see cause alleged, it's alleged improperly. Well, there was a disagreement, there was a personality conflict, there was a uh, 
there is a dispute that, that the, you know, the, the most common one, performance issues. Well, we didn't think he was performing well. That's simply not going to be cause in 99% of cases. Again, everything you need to know about termination for cause and phone calls, 416-870-6400. Second question is this. How difficult is it, though, to establish that termination for cause? Well, you know, it, it, it is very, very difficult. And, and uh, one of the things that, uh, like, like I was just mentioning, one of the last things I was mentioning was, you know, something that would not be just cause performance, the biggest one. You know, unsatisfactory performance is often uh, alleged as just cause when just cause is alleged. But unless it's extreme, sustained over a very long period of time with significant and repeated warnings, even then uh, it's difficult to establish just cause. Performance mm-hmm. is probably not going to be just cause. Making a mistake, an honest mistake uh, in the workplace is not going to be just cause. Uh, being accused of something you did not do <laughs> is not just cause. Uh, a disagreement uh, with your boss, even even a very serious disagreement, is not just cause. And, and, and generally speaking, just minor isolated incidents are typically not going to be just cause. And in fact, you know, I always like to mention there are two cases in Ontario where an employee was guilty of a physical assault in the workplace, still not held to be a termination for cause. Does that mean mm. that a physical assault is never going to be termination for cause? Right. No, it, it, it can be, uh, but it just goes to show the, the obstacles an employer has, the uphill battle uh, yeah. they have. Uh, but we're going to look at everything. We're going to look, are there mitigating circumstances? Was there an alternative? Did the employer really have to let you go without notice the, the next day? Was it something the employer condoned? Was it something that your supervisors have been doing? You've been watching them doing. So these are all things. Um, there's, there's many ways to lose uh, a termination for causes an employer and only typically one, one way to win. Is the length of employment a, a major factor in termination for cause? Oh, absolutely. It's, it is definitely more difficult for long service workers. That's not to say it's easy for short service workers, but it is even more difficult uh, for long service workers. At a minimum, you're going to need more progressive discipline um, yeah. and you're going to need really some of that more serious behavior, right? The, you know, the sexual assault, lying, the fraud, dishonesty, that kind of thing. Is there a situation, John, where you'll sometimes or can get severance if you're fired for cause? Well, the question is if you ha- is if you've been properly fired for right. cause, right? right? So if you've been properly fired for cause, you know, uh, if you come to me and you say, "Well, my employer says that I stole twenty thousand dollars from them," and well, that's true. Am I entitled to severance? Well, well, no. You, you, <laughs> you stole from your employer. You're not entitled to severance. Uh, and uh, you, you may want to speak to a criminal lawyer, actually. At that exactly. Point. Uh, <laughs> if you've been guilty of serious misconduct, uh, then no, you're not going to get severance. And in fact, you might be denied employment insurance. But if you've been improperly right. terminated for cause, so if you've been terminated for cause for one of the reasons I mentioned, if you've been terminated for cause based on a, on a distorted narrative and something that we can we can prove uh, is not accurate, or uh, I should say something the employer cannot prove is accurate because it's their burden to prove that, you're going to be entitled to your full severance, the same severance everyone else gets. And in fact, we're going to seek additional damages for the way mm-hmm. that they terminated your employment. So that's why it's so dangerous uh, for an employer to do this, as I, as I often advise my employer clients. Uh, so there is one other thing I should mention on this question, John. I always like to make right. this uh, very interesting distinction. There are circumstances where you may have done something wrong seriously wrong uh, you may have done it even you may have been warned about it in the past a number of times but you haven't done it on purpose uh, and in that case you may be entitled to your minimum severance only so right. all this to say uh, if you've been terminated for cause uh, 
uh, you always want to speak to an employment lawyer. I won't judge, you know, if it's a termination for cause, I'll tell you, I think it's a termination for cause and you know, that'll be confidential between me and you, but it never hurts to ask. So between that and the kind of looping back to the, uh, the years that is spent that can factor into this whole thing, how many, you know, quote unquote chances should an employee get before that, uh, that rings true, the termination for cause? Well, like we always say in the practice of law, it depends, right? It, it depends yeah. on the circumstances. There is no set rule for how many warnings uh, a person a person should or needs to receive uh, before uh, cause termination can be upheld. So you really just have to look at what's reasonable in the circumstances. What I will say is certainly if you are getting one of those warnings, then you should respond to it because I've had situations where an employee has responded to the warnings they've received. And, you know, when it gets in front of a decision maker, decision maker looks at it and says, well, you know what, this, this kind of looks a little bit like a setup. It looks like the employee isn't really being taken seriously uh, in, in terms of the issues they have. So if you're getting those warnings, don't stay quiet because it's not a three strikes you're out situation. The decision maker is going to look at all the circumstances. How does an employee build a case to terminate somebody for cause? And does that take a lot of time? Can it be, uh, you know, does it have to be written? Can it be verbal? You know what I mean? Well, it generally speaking has to be written just because if it's verbal, then there's going to be differing accounts of what happened. And as an employer, uh, good luck proving that. Um, a performance improvement plan is certainly helpful. Not a panacea, but it's helpful. You should give the employee a chance to explain their behavior. So if you think you've caught the employee doing something serious, have a meeting with them. Have a chance. Give them a chance to be honest and own up to it. Consider recording uh, the meeting, uh, which is of course legal if if both parties are, are if you're a participant in that uh, conversation. If it involves contested allegations of harassment uh, or sexual harassment, conduct an investigation and consider hiring an external investigator. Right? If it's going to be a complicated situation where there's going to be differing account, perhaps and multiple witnesses may not be appropriate for you to do the investigation yourself. Know when you're over your head. Know when you need an external investigator. Uh, collect evidence of the employee's misconduct. An employment lawyer can help you guide you through that process. And above all, um, uh, allege cause at the time of termination. Because employers mm -hmm. who try to allege cause for things they discover after the fact typically going to have an uphill battle. Of course, uh, one thing that has to be mentioned, if, it, if it's not obvious, consider whether it makes sense to build a case for just cause at all. Does it, does all right. it make sense to keep issuing performance improvement plans and paying that employee when you could be using that money towards severance and extinguishing your liability? Yes. And, and do you really want to risk being responsible for punitive damages and things like that? So talk to an employment lawyer and, and we can help you. There may be a case where it's appropriate to allege cause, but you don't want to do it before you chat with us. I'm going to give you one minute to answer this email, see if you can pull it off. Patricia says, hey, John, my employer has given me two weeks to return to work for medical leave. My doctor says that I'm not ready. What should I do? All right, I'm going to take you up on this challenge, John. Yep. Here's what I'll say in response to this. Well, this this is actually pretty simple. I mean, what, if, if you've got a treating physician, you got to listen to your doctor, right? You shouldn't be cho You shouldn't be choosing between your health and your job. What do you do? You get an updated doctor's note, hopefully a detailed doctor's note. Try not get a one-liner because you're gonna get resistance from your employer if you get that. Gotcha. Try and get a detailed doctor's note. Ask them if they need any more information. And if they terminate your employment, well, you can't stop them from doing that, but that's the point. You can talk to me and we can seek some compensation for you. Done, works without a net. We're done for a Monday night. John Pickett is your guy, partner, Sanfiru Tamarkin, LLP. Reach out.
Anytime, 1-855-821-5900. Help at employmentlawyer.ca. The website, also helpful, full of information, free, anonymous, with severance pay calculator on top. Pocketemploymentlawyer.ca is the way to do that. We'll catch it again Wednesday night. Hope you join us then, but do not go anywhere. On Point, coming right back. Our good pal Alex Pearson is back and up next here on Global News Radio. The preceding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Global News Radio.